this morning I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning. We're going to begin our study in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 beginning at verse 2. As you're turning there, I would uh, remind us of something that perhaps has been uh, maybe a little difficult to remember in recent months that really it remains true even in the midst of a pandemic that we all want to be happy. I don't think that is needs a great deal of argument. We all do want to be happy. We want to be happy, but much of our routines in this time, much of our normal way of life has been disrupted More than that, our happiness and joy in life is often connected with other people. And even that has been disconnected. It's been disrupted. Our connection with one another, our our community in which we find so much happiness has been disrupted. This morning's passage in 2 Corinthians, as we continue our sermon series in 2 Corinthians this morning, the picking up from about three months ago or so, Continuing our way through this book, we discover that this passage really is about happiness. It really is about our joy. It puts on display how our joy is connected to two realities in life. The first reality, the first is that the joy and life that can be found through repentance of sin. We're going to have to look at the scriptures to understand that one. How does repentance of sin, how does admitting that we've been wrong about something, how does prayer of confession bring happiness to anybody but Matt Hardy, who seems to think that that is the best part of our entire service? Of all the things that we ask him to lead, it's the one he anticipates and enjoys the most. What is it that Matt Hardy knows about the nature of confession and repentance that brings him joy? Perhaps we'll find that in our passage this morning. The second is the joy that can be found in seeking the sanctification and transformation of our brothers and sisters in Christ. These are the two things that we will find in the realities of seeking our happiness, our joy, this morning, beginning in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 2. Please follow along with me as I read. Make room... In your hearts for us, we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you, I have great pride in you, I am filled with comfort in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy." For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still the more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, 
but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And beside our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, Because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. How you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. Lord God, we thank you this morning that you have worked in your church, particularly in the church in Corinth, that where each one would abandon you, each one is one of unclean lips, dwelling among a people of unclean lips, you abandon them not, but through the proclamation of the truth of the gospel, They were reminded, kept, and were given the gift of repentance, faith, and joy in Christ. We thank you for this record, for your labor in the life of the Apostle Paul to bring, to inspire and bring this record, this truth, this letter as your word to us that it might be profitable this morning. We pray that you would work by your word and spirit among your people that you would affect among us as well the joy of repentance, godly grief in the midst of the people, and encouragement, comfort, and hope. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we jump back into 2 Corinthians, we need a little bit of context. We could probably use a whole sermon's worth of context. We are, after all, starting in chapter 7 after many months' break. Let us begin by simply saying that in Corinth, some, we discover in the first chapters, had rejected Paul and his teaching by receiving and not rejecting false teachers who had made their way into the church. There were some who went along with the false teachers, but our passage today turns. Really, chapter 7 marks a turning point from addressing and making an argument for his apostleship, making an argument for the validity of the ministry of the, the gospel proclaimers in their midst, and now turning, especially after, and, and now turning to the people who, having received Paul's rebuke, did turn, did reject the false teachers, did distance themselves from unbelievers. Now, we call this 2 Corinthians. Um, it is the second letter to the Corinthians that is recorded for us in scriptures, but we know, according to the scripture, that there's actually multiple letters 
to the Corinthians from the Apostle Paul, one of them that we do not have recorded for us, but we know some of the contents about it from in 2 Corinthians itself. In that letter that the Apostle Paul sent sometime after the, the first letter of Corinthians, the Apostle Paul offered a severe rebuke of the church, a calling to them. And now, in 2 Corinthians, he's writing this letter according to the response of how they received that middle letter, maybe first and a half Corinthians or so. All right. So, in verse 2, he's responding to those who received his rebuke favorably. He says, in verse 2, make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've taken advantage of no one. The believers who had rejected the false teachers are the majority of the church, and he's turning to address, encourage, and spur the church on here. Now, if you look at verse 3, it's interesting. I do not say this to condemn you, not to continue the argument that he's been faithful among them, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Now, that's an interesting phrase, a bit of an odd order, right? Let's say that we're going to encourage a group of people to really be a people together, right? And we're going to do this. We're going to be a team. We're going to be a group, and we're going to stick through this all the way to the end. What do you say? Well, what we do is we all circle up if we didn't all have to wear masks and remain socially distanced. We would all put our hands in the middle, and we'll say something like this, right? We're going to live together, and we'll die together, right? That's how you psych up a team to go be a team together. But that's not what the Apostle Paul says. Rather, the order of this passage is you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Friends, that's the nature of the team that is the church. You see, we aren't a team because we all decided to put our hands in the same circle and say, go team. Go and be the church, right? No, we are a people together because we have died together in Christ. And in Christ, we live together. What happens is as a people who are on our own sinners find ourselves kneeling by grace through faith at the foot of the cross where we receive forgiveness of sin and we say, in Christ, my sin was died. And we look around and we see this group of people who are kneeling at the foot of the same cross and we realize we are here together. And in that place together, we rise as Christ's blood-bought church together. Our together, we must never forget, our together is in Christ's death and resurrection. And that together, it's the center and the compelling purpose for all of what we are together. Every single moment, without failure, we must remember that this is our together. Our together is repeated over and over again as Christ died in our place so that we may have life. As we seek to die to self and live in Christ in repentance as is the case that we may die and we will live again. 
This is the nature of the life of the church, to die together and live together. And it continues in verse 4. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort, and in our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. Pride, comfort, joy. That makes sense to me. Affliction, one of these things is not like the other. You see, Paul has proclaimed and served the church in Corinth with the gospel. But all of that proclamation has brought about great affliction for the Apostle Paul. The affliction has not only been in the context of persecution, but also the affliction of strained relationship and a longing for restoration as the minister of the gospel rebukes the church and waits for the word of repentance. You know, I wonder when the Apostle Paul says that he suffered many sleepless nights, how many of those nights during these particular days were sleepless nights because he was awake into the evening wondering, is Titus going to return with a report of the church in Corinth? I wrote them that severe letter, that bold rebuke. What's the word from Corinth? Did he wake up early in the morning thinking and praying and wondering, did Titus arrive in the night with word of the church in Corinth? Love. That's what Paul was doing. He was loving the church, one commentator puts it this way, love, gospel-centered and compelled love, is often painful and costly. It is often filled with risk and self-denial. But it's in the context of such sacrificial love that Jesus has loved us. And that we will dis- discover joy in our life. What we will see, if you look at verse 5, what we will see is we will see the joy that comes in the context of gospel proclamation. Look at verses 5 through 7 with me. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he has comforted you as He told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me. And so I rejoiced still the more. We have to contrast the affliction in this passage and the comfort in this passage in order to truly understand Paul's joy. He's speaking of joy. It's in their bodies, in verse 5, that they have no rest. They're afflicted at every turn, fighting and fear. Their bodies, their minds, physical, mental, emotional, filled with trauma and anxiety in the labor of gospel proclamation. But how did God comfort Paul? Did he say, you know what, Paul, I know it's been a hard run. Maybe the next church plant will be a little easier than Corinth. They're a tough group, you know. Is that the comfort that Paul looked for? Maybe Future ministry will be easier than this. No. He comforted Paul by the coming of Titus. Now, what is it about the return of Titus that brings such comfort to Paul? When Paul sent the letter to Corinth, he sent it with a messenger, an elder, 
that it would be read among them and that there would be someone to pastor them through the receipt of the letter and that there would be someone to bring a report of how the letter was received. That's Titus. And Titus is coming, he's returning to Paul with a report of how the church responded to such a severe rebuke. The comfort of the return of Titus, as wonderful as Titus may be, was not Titus himself, but rather the report of the church, because he came with news of the faith and faithfulness of the church in Corinth, their longing, mourning, and zeal. You see, the suffering of Paul has been for the sake of the church knowing Christ and his gospel. And so the comfort and joy that Paul experiences will be in the context of seeing the church flourish. There's nothing that would satisfy Paul more. He has been suffering that they would respond with faith. And that's the word that he received. Now don't miss that it is God in the passage. God, verse 6, who comforts the downcast. It's the gospel of God that Paul proclaimed. It is to repent in light of God's judgment and grace that Paul wrote the letter. And it's a report of God's work of faith and repentance among the Corinthians that Titus brought to Paul. God is the source and center of ministry transformation, comfort, and joy. That's so important for us to see. Really, what what Titus came with news of was not that Paul, what you said worked. Paul knows that what he says doesn't work. He knows that there's no power in his words alone or in his letter-writing skills. What Titus brought word of was that the Lord was still at work in Corinth. And that brings Paul great joy. The Point Youth Community Group studied a video series last year by John Piper called Blazing Center. In it, he gives this definition of love. John Piper's definition of love goes like this. Love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. Our culture has a has deeply connected its happiness with a radically individualistic pursuit of personal peace, consumption, autonomy. And I look at that and I say, where is autonomy in that definition of love? What does autonomy, what is the idea of being completely my own, separate and able on my own have to do with self-sacrifice? For the joy of another. Just watch a couple of advertisements on TV. You'll see that comfort is sold as a product, a product to pamper yourself with, a product to consume for yourself, doing what you want, being what you want to be. Today, we who know the Lord must discover perhaps. We should say rediscover. Perhaps this is something that we have lost. We must discover that our comfort and joy 
is to be found in the growing sanctification and fruitful perseverance of our brothers and sisters in the church. And this will mean taking the risk of confronting sin among one another. But if searching the word for the truth of God is our daily practice together, then won't conviction, correction, rebuke, righteousness seem like it just falls into place? Friends, let me ask you this. What do you believe will make you happy today? What is your great joy and hope? What if it was that God is at work in his church? What if you woke up in the morning, tomorrow morning, and the great news that you long to hear is the Lord is at work in your household? in someone that you have called the night before, and in the midst of the group that you were in a Bible study with earlier that week? What if that was your great hope? The Lord God is at work in the midst of his church. Friends, we have joy in gospel proclamation and when the Lord appears and works great gospel fruit. Beginning in verse 8, we see that there is joy in grief and repentance. Now, there better be a good argument here, because that doesn't really make a lot of sense just sitting there on its own. Not to the, to the worldly me, not to just my simple reason. Joy and grief? Aren't those like definitionally opposite? <laughs> joy in grief and repentance? Well, we've seen that what ends in Paul's joy begins in God's comfort. But between Paul's joy and God's comfort is a passing through of grief and repentance. This is what we see in verses 8 through 10. I think verses 8 through 10 are worthy of highlights all over the place in our Bibles. Beginning at verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. He's not heartless. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief, produces death. Paul doesn't regret the letter of severe rebuke, the, the severe letter. If you're taking notes, it was 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, where the apostle Paul references this letter. He says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know of the abundant love that I have for you. And what is the love the, the Apostle Paul has for the church? But the love to make known the gospel. This is the love that he always has for the church, to make known the truth of the cross. Now, one commentator, Scott Hefferman, offers this comment. In our pluralistic, therapeutic, privatistic culture, this kind of intervention is uncomfortable and increasingly uncommon. 
a severe letter, a severe rebuke, to run the risk of causing pain? Forget it. Now, those are three key words that we must deal with, pluralistic, therapeutic, privatistic. They are the words that are at war in our culture with the joy of the church. Pluralistic. The idea that how can we call someone to repent if their truth is their own truth? What if what they believe is for them? And what you, what I believe is for me? How can you rebuke someone if there's no shared belief, if there's no central ground to stand upon? Therapeutic. The idea that our happiness is centered in an affirmation of ourselves. But repentance suggests that there's something wrong with me. Friends, that's not affirmation of the self. That is to say, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. The world would have us believe that the problem is that I need you to accept me. And I need others to affirm me privatistic, the idea that even if you think something must be wrong, our radical individualism suggests that you should keep it to yourself. You live your life, I'll live mine, even if I do happen to be in error, though we disagree on what the error is, leave me alone. The bottom line is that our happiness is defined by how I feel about me. It completely rejects the idea that my happiness must also be considered in the face of God's judgment. Do you hear that? What the Apostle Paul does is he brings the unmitigated truth of the reality of the wrath of God upon sin. And he brings that in to the equation. Just as Matt did in our prayer of confession to remember that the Lord is the holy God, the holy, holy, holy God. This is not a question of me bringing my truth to bear upon you. It is you and I saying, woe is me before that holy God. That idea runs into direct conflict with the culture of the world. How does a person show love? You remember John Piper's definition, love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. Friends, there is no greater love that we can have than to show one another our need for Christ, to remind one another that we live in light of judgment, either our judgment or the judgment that Christ took in our place. In the face of judgment, we remind one another of the grace of God so that we might be called to repentance and so Believe. This is the process that we see the Corinthians walk through in the next passage. Verses 9 and 10 blow me away. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. He rejoices that you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you would suffer no loss through us. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. 
whereas worldly grief produces death. Friends, my birthday's coming up, and each time these birthdays happen, it is becoming more and more realistic to me to long for a life that could be lived without regret. And I'm running out of time for that, and something's telling me with each year, it's not going to happen. But godly grief, a repentance, a repentance of my life that has been lived, a godly grief that receives grace upon grace upon grace, gives no There's no regret to be found in repenting of a life we regret. Again, there's a distinction between godly grief and worldly grief. One produces salvation and the other produces death. Again, Scott Heffman says this, so good. Worldly sorrow is the grief that comes about because one's actions result in missing out on something the world has to offer. Worldly sorrow feels bad because it wants more of the world. Worldly grief finds its frame of reference in the world. It's constantly looking at the world, its possessions, its freedoms, its opportunities, and considering whether it stands to gain or to lose more or less of what the world has to offer. You know what that grief is like, don't you? I know I do. I know what it's like to lose something of the world and wish I could have more of it and to be grieved in reference to the world. But godly grief, has the Lord alone as its frame of reference. It's constantly considering with sober reverence the reality of God's judgment. It knows that to remain in sin is to suffer true irrevocable loss. But if God is truly in the grief, it will always bear the fruit of repentance. Godly grief is a grief that suffers no loss. What kind of grief is that? That's the kind of grief, if I'm going to have to grieve, I'll take a grief that suffers no loss. You see, the only thing that a person who expresses Godly grief by grace stands to lose is the world and the self. I mean, all that you stand to lose is everything that the world has to offer and your entire self. That's all that you lose with godly grief that leads to repentance. But godly grief that leads to repentance never loses Christ. And by grace obtains his eternal kingdom. Friends, Jesus is very clear about this. If you lose the world, it's going away anyway. If you lose yourself, who am I but grass? In Mark eight thirty-five, for whoever would save his life will lose it. 
but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What happens in, as we continue in the passage, for we see the earnestness that godly grief has produced in you. You see, godly grief begins to produce a beautiful work of earnestness. We experience the grace of God in the midst of repentance, and instead of feeling a sense of loss, we experience eagerness and zeal and longing and righteousness. You know what we're doing? We're discovering the good way of our God. We're finding out that he is right and good and that we were wrong. We were wrong. Verse 12. So although I wrote to you, it's not for your sake, but for the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. I love that little phrase. Your earnestness for us might be revealed to you. To be clear, your earnestness for us means an acceptance of the word that they preached. Okay, Your earnestness for the word that was preached might be revealed to you. Here's what that means. When you and I have the opportunity to invest in the life of one who is wayward, our hope is this, that the individual would see that the Lord God is still at work in them. That's the joy. That, not that, that they would say, oh, you were right. You were right to rebuke me. But they would see, my God is still at work in me to shape and to refine, to sanctify, to actually make holy me. Your earnestness might be revealed to you. Our desire is not that the person would see that we're right. Our desire is not that the person would see that we're better or more righteous or we have our act together. Our desire is that they would see that he who began a good work in them will bring it to completion. It's when Paul sees this happen in the Corinthians that he experiences a deep, godly comfort. The Lord is at work. The Lord, God, works. If he works in them, he's working in me. There's a joy that can be found in repentance that can never be found in our own ongoing pursuit of the world. If someone has genuinely confronted you with the truth of the gospel, I'm asking you a question. Is it, has it happened? Is there someone right now who is genuinely confronting you with the truth of the gospel, consider if your grief is really just your sadness at losing idolatry. Or might God work a godly grief in you? Have you honestly looked at how your waywardness and sin has caused great loss to your knowledge and joy in God? Yes, you will experience loss in the world, yes. But such repentance leads to salvation without regret. And there's one last thing that happens. The last thing that happens in the last few verses, beginning in verse 13, is joy in the community. Therefore, we are comforted, and beside our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. 
Not only is Paul encouraged and relieved by the Corinthians' repentance, Titus, the messenger, is also refreshed. There's no greater practical refreshment for the one who labors in gospel proclamation than to see the fruit of the gospel in the lives of the church. Why? Because it's in that place that the gospel minister knows that he's nothing. When you confront a friend and you offer a gentle rebuke or perhaps a severe word, you know there's nothing in your word or your rebuke. But you know that if the Lord works, the Lord is present. And there's no greater joy for the believer than to know that the Lord is present. And the whole church gets to see repentance at work in one another. Again, as John Piper puts it, we should let this joy, the joy of edifying others, free us from the bondage of private pleasures that makes us indifferent to the good of others. Love does not seek its own private limited joy but instead seeks its own joy in the good that is in the salvation and edification of others. Friends, in my life, I have suffered no deeper pain in life than in the labor of the proclamation of the gospel. And when I wrote that sentence in my notes, I thought, that is a pretty strong statement. Is it true? I thought about it for a while, and the answer is yes. There is no deeper pain that I have suffered in my life than in the midst of gospel proclamation. To be clear, I don't mean this. This preaching, this is fun. I love sharing the word with you together here. I mean applying the gospel to my life. That kind of gospel proclamation. Applying the gospel to the lives of my family. It's hard. I mean the lives of my friends and in the lives of the church, that gospel proclamation that we are partners in together is hard. It can feel like asking a person to leave behind all that he or she has loved in the world because it is a call to die to self and repent of love of the world. It's reminding someone that all you have to do is everything you've ever loved in the world. All that you have to lose is everything you've ever loved in the world. All that you have to lose is yourself. Saying that to my own soul, saying that to the soul of another is a difficult thing. But I can also say that I have experienced no greater comfort or joy in this life than when I see the church turn in repentance. My soul and the souls of my brothers and sisters. When I see godly grief produce repentance that leads to salvation with no regret, I am encouraged that the Lord yet works. Do you know what it's like to see someone whom you were so afraid to confront in sin and error tell you that they're thankful that you preached the gospel to them? The gospel, not running around with your little self-righteousness, but the whole truth of the gospel, the judgment of God laid on the person of Christ so that we might walk in faith. 
to get to see the joy of the Lord rise up in a brother and sister as they leave behind idolatry without regret. Therefore, we are comforted. And we rejoice because we have complete confidence in God's ongoing work in the church. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are working. It is a miraculous thing. An impossibility apart from grace. An impossibility apart from the renewing, sanctifying work of your spirit that we would die to self and receive life in Christ. Thank you for the work that you are doing in the midst of your church. I pray that this would cause us to labor all the more, not that we believe that our labor can produce any fruit, but because we have seen that in the midst of our labor, you have worked and you will work again. And fill up our praise, our celebration with the joy of seeing you work in the midst of this church. Thank you, God. We pray this in your good name, in the name of our great atoning Christ Jesus. Amen.